Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Dr. Michael Mann with the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University is here on the impact of the Arctic hitting a whopping 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit the hottest temperature on record for the Arctic. Should we be worried? Professor Jeffrey D. Sachs drops by on COVID-19 reversing globalization and the Toxics Program Advocate with U.S. Public Interest Research Group, Danielle Melgar, is on the show. Why are we ignoring rocket fuel in our drinking water? Stay tuned. So the northern Russian Siberian town of Verkhoyansk, which is uh, normally in the dead of summer, hits an average high temperature of around 68 degrees, is over 100 degrees, or at least it was yesterday. I'm not sure about today. This is very troubling, or at least it seems to be on the surface. Let's do a reality check here with Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology the director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of several books, including most recently The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. He's also the recipient of the Tyler Prize. His website, Michael Mann, with two N's at the end, net. And you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann, M-A-N-N. Dr. Mann, Professor Mann, is this like a flare going off, a warning Well, this is just the latest development that really drives home the fact that we are dealing with what can reasonably be described as a planetary emergency. We are seeing new thresholds of heat here in the United States. Now in the Arctic, the Arctic is warming about twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And that has to do with some of the the factors that are specific to that region. Um, There's a, a lot of ice. And when you melt that ice away and you expose the ocean surface or the ground, it can heat up much more rapidly. And so we see that so-called Arctic amplification of warming at work. In fact, the Arctic has warmed the better part of a degree Fahrenheit over the past century, as much as the rest of the planet has warmed over several decades, just in one decade. That's how fast the planet is warming. And so we expect to see these new thresholds breached. And this is a significant one, 100 degrees, triple digits Fahrenheit temperatures in the Arctic, north of the Arctic Circle, is simply consistent with the picture that is emerging of a planet that's warming up and a climate that is changing in adverse ways as we continue to pump carbon pollution into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. We have been warned by the uh, IPCC that, in fact, it was, what, two, three years ago that they said you've got 10 years to get this thing under control. Does this, you know, revelation of this rapid warming in the Arctic mean that their timeline was too conservative, that the crisis is even closer to us than we thought? Or does this validate their assertion? And, And how is the world responding to this? 
So no, this is more or less consistent with the predictions. When you warm the planet, even by a degree, you increase the likelihood of those extreme heat events, like the ones we're seeing in the Arctic, by tenfold or a hundredfold. It just has to do with the fact that the extreme events become even more extreme, even with a modest amount of warming. And of course, we'll see much more warming if we continue on this course. So the fact that what is happening, uh, what is unfolding, is consistent with the model predictions is cause enough for concern. It indicates that, in fact, we don't have much time. If we are to limit warming below truly catastrophic levels, you mentioned a decade. It was the 12-year sort of number that was quoted quite a bit a couple oh, years, years ago. That we had 12 okay. years. Yeah. And so it's, it's about two years later. So that's about 10 years. And, and what that number really means is that we have about a decade to bring down those carbon emissions dramatically by a factor of two, even within the next decade, if we're to avert warming the planet by more than about two degrees, the better part of four degrees Fahrenheit, where we really start to see the worst impacts play out. So we don't have much time. The COVID-19 crisis, ironically, the shutdown and the decrease in air travel and transportation, that led only to a modest decrease in carbon emissions. It looks like maybe only about 4% or no more than 7% this year, even with that massive shutdown, that massive lockdown. And that isn't even enough. If we're to bring those carbon emissions down by a factor of two in the next decade, we've got to bring them down by more than 10% every year. And so that shows that this is still an uphill battle, simply changing individual behavior, traveling less, those sorts of changes in behavior and individual actions aren't enough. We need systemic changes, structural changes in our economy, policies that incentivize a massive and rapid shift away from fossil fuel burning. For example, the Green New Deal, I actually think it doesn't quite go far enough. The Green New Deal contains incentives for renewable energy, which is a critical part of the solution. I also think we actually need to put a price on carbon. Polluters need to pay when they dump their pollution into the atmosphere. Right now, they do that at no cost. As my good friend Bill Kibben has said, we've given the fossil fuel industry the greatest subsidy of all time. They can dump their waste into our atmosphere at no cost, and that has to change. And so reason to believe that if we see this massive blue wave that is shaping up right now and we see new leadership in Washington, D.C., we can hit the ground running. We're making some progress already, even under Trump. There's enough happening at the state level and what companies are doing, what individuals are doing, that we're making some progress. What we need to do is accelerate that progress. And, you know, if we get a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, maybe even working together with some moderate conservatives who are, you know, offended by what their party has become, I think there's a real opportunity for dramatic action here within the next year. One of the things that we're seeing in uh, governments around the world is the shift to the authoritarian right. You know, we're seeing it right here at home with Donald Trump in the White House, and hopefully it'll be a temporary one, but more permanent ones have happened in Turkey, in the Philippines, in India now with Mr. Modi, in Hungary with Orban, Poland with Duda, in Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. And one of the through lines for all of these seems to be climate change denial. Now, you wrote a book about climate change denial and its relationship to politics and to billionaires and all this kind yeah. of stuff. You know, I look at this scenario and I'm just like flummoxed. Why do the world's billionaires want to fund right wing governments to deny climate science? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sad commentary on our state of affairs, Tom, and, and you speak to a much larger problem. Climate change denial and the lack of action on climate is really a symptom of a much larger problem that we have right now with authoritarian regimes taking hold around the world. And one commonality here is fossil fuels. Most of these countries we're talking about are essentially petrostates. Their governmental policies are dictated by powerful fossil fuel interests who favor their own short-term financial interest over the greater good of, of the people that these governments are supposed to represent. So it's a disturbing trend. I like to think that when we have a chance to reverse that trend here in November in the United States, and perhaps that will mark sort of the so-called lancing of the boil, where we finally see the breaking of this bubble. Yeah, there you go. Dr. Michael Mann, michaelmann.net is the website. The Madhouse Effect is most recent book. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for dropping by. Great talking to you. Jeffrey D. Sachs, a university professor, director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, has produced some just absolutely extraordinary work over the years. The Age of Sustainable Development back in 2015, building a new American economy in 2017, a new foreign policy beyond American exceptionalism. His uh, website, by the way, Jeff Sachs, S-A-C-H-S dot org. You can tweet him at Jeff D. Sachs. He has a new book out. It's called Ages of Globalization, and it's uh, fascinating thought-provoking, in-depth analysis of kind of the history of globalization going back 70-some-odd thousand years ago. Professor Sachs, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for writing this new book and for joining us. Tom, I hope you're well. How are you doing? I am. Yes, uh, knock wood. So you go through the seven ages of globalization, the Paleolithic, the Neolithic, the Equestrian, the Classical Age, the Ocean Age, the Industrial Age, and now the Digital Age. Give us a, a snapshot of what you're talking about here. Explain what you mean by this. The idea is to try to understand how humanity has related with each other, especially through trade and migration, long-distance spread of ideas throughout human history. When I was first studying economics many decades ago, I thought, my God, we are opening a new period called globalization. It took me quite a while to understand that while there are unique aspects of our globalization compared to the past. We've been at this global affair for quite a long time. And to understand the dynamics of global change, I came to understand over the course of my career and policy work that you really did need to understand the interactions of geography, the climate, the physical resources, the location of economies, how those interacted with the institutions of government, politics, and so forth, with fundamentally the changes of our know-how, our technologies, and perhaps the most fundamental driver of change of them all. And in this overview of human globalization, of long-distance interactions, I emphasize this three-way understanding, taking physical nature, technological change, and ideas, culture, politics as three sides that are constantly interacting. I believe it helps us to understand what's happening right now, which is mass disruption to our lives, our understanding, our nature of global interaction. So that's the purpose of the book. 
what does this mean for us today? What I think is stunning and upsetting and unnerving is that we are absolutely entering a new phase of globalization. Many days in the COVID pandemic we hear is globalization over or Are we reverting to national or local economies? The answer is certainly not, especially in an age driven by digital technologies, which are instantaneously bringing knowledge and all aspects of our economic life within global reach. So we're not reverting to any kind of local economics. We're more interconnected than ever. And that's a basic truth. But What's also happening is that we are experiencing a deep disruption to our economy's work. COVID is obvious. We couldn't be more dramatic, of course. But what it has done is to dramatically accelerate the digitalization of every aspect of our economic life. Most of us are working from home. Payments, commerce, governance is all now online. Not all of it, of course, but a remarkable amount. Within a few weeks, hundreds of millions of kids went to school online completely unexpectedly, while with lots of difficulties more seamlessly than one could have imagined over the course of just a few weeks. At the same time, global politics is changing absolutely rapidly. Again, in this case, accelerated both by the pandemic and by Trump, who is the most incoherent and narrow-minded president we've ever had. He's actually accelerating what was already underway, which is the end of the American-led global era to now a truly multipolar global era where China, East Asia more generally, India, Africa, Europe are each more independently acting and interacting regions. So I think we're entering a new kind of geopolitics. The U.S. has basically abandoned uh, leadership under the weird and unhelpful banner of America first, which is uh, getting us deeper and deeper into trouble on many fronts. But even beside that point, we are now in a different kind of global politics much of the day-to-day conflict that we're seeing with China or the rhetorical uh, skirmishing with China is really a reflection of this global change. The third aspect of our global reality, of course, is nature itself. COVID-19 is only the most recent of a wave of emerging new diseases that reflect in a fundamental way how humanity is impinging on nature and thereby triggering new so-called zoonotic events where pathogens, viruses, bacteria, and so forth spread from animal populations to human populations. In this case, from bats to humans, probably somewhere in southwest China originally. But this is just one of a series of such pandemics, SARS and Ebola, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome being three other recent zoonotic emergent diseases. And sad to say, there will be more to come. But that's part of an even larger environmental story, of course, Tom, is, as you know, climate change, mass pollution, destruction of uh, the biosphere. In short, we are in a new global era, which will change fundamentally how we live, how we interact, 
and what we have to do to stay safe. It's remarkable. We have just a little less than a minute left, and you've raised so many large issues here. I'm wondering your thoughts on the emergence of digital oligarchs, essentially. Uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook have now said that science about climate change is going to be treated like opinion on Facebook, so climate change deniers can do whatever they want. Is this new digital age going to be one that's controlled by an oligarchy, essentially? We are in uh, the robber baron era of the new digital economy where Bezos and Zuckerberg and, and a few others think they call the shots and for the short term they do. I don't think this will last long. It is phenomenal that in a short period of time, Bezos gained $50 billion in the few weeks of this pandemic. It's not going to last. We're going to be taxing them. We're going to be regulating them. And we're going to be regarding these technologies as a common ownership of humanity, not the ownership of a few people. From your lips to God's ears, Professor Jeffrey D. Sachs, the new book, Ages of Globalization. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Tom Hartman program. Thank you. Professor Sachs, extraordinary book. I spent several hours with it yesterday. It is fascinating. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties i think is the proper way to say that and the brand i trust the most is new leaf naturals nu leaf natural cbd oil is the highest quality cbd oil on the market it's 100 percent organic highly concentrated has no additional additives grown in the usa and the only ingredient is hemp so the product remains in its most pure and simple form go to newleafnaturals.com that's nuleafnaturals.com and save 30 percent off and get free shipping in the u.s when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafNaturals.com. So did you ever hear of perchlorate? It is a compound that is used in the production of rocket fuel, among other things, it was used back in the day, I believe it was in the 30s or 40s, that this stuff killed off the thyroid. And so when people had hyperthyroidism, which is too much thyroid, their thyroid is too active, they would use it to basically burn away part of the thyroid. Then they discovered that it had just really radical side effects and was not a good thing to be giving to people. But it has gotten into our drinking water, and this is a major problem. Danielle Melgar is with us, the toxic program advocate for the U.S. Public Interest Research Groups. USPIRG.org is the website. And uh, Danielle, welcome to the program. Tell us about, first of all, perchlorate, what it is and why we should worry about it in our drinking water. Perchlorate is a chemical that has ended up in our drinking water. It is used in things like rocket fuel, fireworks, matches, and fertilizers, and it just gets into our drinking water uh, in the manufacturing process. What are the downsides? What are the consequences to Americans of having perchlorate in our water? When we come into contact with perchlorate, like you said, it can disrupt thyroid function which can lead to hypothyroidism. So that's the opposite of the condition you mentioned. Thyroid gland cannot produce enough thyroid hormone. And like you said, that's indisputable. Perchlorate has been used to treat hyperthyroidism, so we know that it has that effect. 
And that treatment was discontinued because it resulted in side effects up to and including death. And then beyond that, in children, the thyroid plays a role in healthy neurological development. So it has also been linked to loss of IQ points in children. I'm assuming that this is still the case. This was a number of a couple of decades ago when a member of my family went on long-term thyroid medication because her, her thyroid wasn't working as it should. And, you know, we were looking this up and discovered that the most widely prescribed medication in the United States right now is Synthroid, Synthroid, Levothroid, Armor, these brand names for products that basically, you know, replace missing thyroid hormone as a consequence of damage to the thyroid or hypothyroidism of unknown etiology. Does decades and decades of perchlorate in our water have something to do with this national epidemic of hypothyroidism? Yeah, so, I mean, since I'm not a doctor, I can't comment on all of the possible causes for different types Mm -hmm. of thyroid disorders, but we know there are a wide variety of sources of this problem, and of course, perchlorate is one of those potential Is in that list. Yeah, I know some people were speculating that it was radioactive iodine from the nuclear tests, above-ground nuclear tests in the 50s, too. So the Environmental Protection Agency should regulate this. What's the story? You know, when do they start? Where are they at right now? Back in the 90s, perchlorate was found in high concentrations throughout the southwest of the United States. And in the absence of a federal response, states like California and Massachusetts stepped up to enact their own standards, but the EPA still has not done that. And they have decided that under the Safe Drinking Water Act, they don't need to regulate perchlorate. And the reasoning for that is that, first, they say that perchlorate no longer appears in high enough levels to cause health problems. And second, they say it doesn't appear in enough states' drinking water to be worth regulating at the federal level. But the problem with that reasoning is that, well, the reason that they're saying that is that states like California and Massachusetts have taken matters into their own hands. So Uh, essentially their reasoning is that their job is done because states have done their job for them. And of course, this leaves Americans who don't live in those states still at risk of exposure. Is there a ban for the production of perchlorate in effect? Or does American industry still make it and use it? American industry still makes it and uses it. The recent EPA decision is only about the incidence of perchlorate in our drinking water, but it does nothing to actually turn off the tap and stop perchlorate production in order to then eventually stop it getting into our environment. So do we know if it's overrepresented in the water supplies of, of states that don't regulate it? So in the states that don't regulate it, there are certain states that are definitely more impacted than others. In some states, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence that it's a major concern in their drinking water. But in others, it definitely is, and we're seeing those elevated levels. It's remarkable stuff. And, and so what is usperg.org? What are you all calling for? This particular decision by the EPA is a final ruling So there's not really room under this EPA to kind of reverse this decision. We are obviously opposed to this decision and in the future under a different EPA would push to reverse the decision and start to regulate perchlorate in drinking water. Like I said, we don't expect that to happen under this EPA. 
So we are actually focused on, you know, many other toxic chemicals of which perchlorate is just one. So yeah, we have just had to focus elsewhere for the time being. Do you think that if, you know, God willing, we get a, uh, and I realize you're not a political organization. In fact, let me take, let me not use political words, that we get a new administration and a new Congress who actually are concerned about the health and welfare of American citizens, that uh, perchlorate will come back up, that the EPA will consider regulating this? The EPA has in the past considered it under the Obama administration. That was something under consideration. So I think certainly there is a possibility that a future EPA that, like you said, is more invested in protecting our health and environment would entertain proposals to regulate perchlorate. Is there a perchlorate lobby? You mean, is there a specific trade organization? Is there some industry group that's fighting to keep it from being regulated? I do not actually have a good answer to that um, or about perchlorate specifically. Certainly there are organizations like the American Chemistry Council that will tend to lobby on topics like this. Yeah, got it. Danielle Melgar with the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's USPIRG.org. Danielle, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.